0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. What would you have described your purpose as before if somebody stopped you and said, hey, what's your purpose
1: in life? I think I would have been very hard-pressed to answer that it was not something i'd ever thought about i honestly probably could have eye-rolled at the question because to me it's like i'm just surviving i'm just figuring it out like purpose i don't know what my purpose is i honestly don't know it never would have dawned on me that i could have a purpose
0: hey there it's light watkins your host of at the end of the tunnel which is a podcast that features the backstories of people who have found their purpose with both large and small causes, and they're now using their platform or their voice or their art or their social media in a way that leaves the world a better place. And my guest today is Jordan Taylor, who I met during the pandemic. And it's interesting because I literally watched Jordan go through the process of discovering her purpose and then doing something about it. Because like many people who were stuck at home, Jordan became reflective. She had had a career in music and then she worked in real estate and she was very good at those things. But she said that she lacked a sense of purpose. She wasn't fulfilled. She started volunteering with a man named Joseph Bradford, who you all may remember from episode 47. So Joseph was the one man food bank. Who started a nonprofit called The Bare Truth, which provides supplies and food and transitional housing to people who are living without homes. Well, Jordan started volunteering with Joseph down on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And I remember her posting about it, and that's what actually inspired me to want to interview Joseph because he had such a great story. But then Jordan took things a step further. And she created her own nonprofit, which is called 12 MOG, that stands for 12 Months of Giving, which is where she creates volunteer opportunities for each month of the year. And what's interesting is that really suited her disposition of wanting to be of service, but also wanting to have a little more variety in the way that she was choosing to give back. Plus, when she dug a little deeper, she found that there were so many organizations out there that could use a little more help or donations or volunteers. So this was her way of being able to help all of the ones that resonated with her instead of just feeling like she had to pick one. And I love this story because it's something that anyone can do. And again, it's happening in real time. Plus, Jordan has such an infectious personality that I can see how she's able to recruit people to her cause. And if you can relate to her feeling of of being unfulfilled, my hope is that hearing her story will inspire you to seek out opportunities in your neck of the woods to give back or to leave the world a better place than you found it in whichever way resonates with you. Now, before we get into the conversation, I want to encourage you to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any episodes and also make sure to rate and review the podcast on the Apple podcast app. It's super quick to do. You just look down at your phone screen, click the name of the podcast, scroll down past the previous episodes. When you see the five blank stars, click the one on the far right and you've left the rating. Boom. Super easy. And it definitely goes a long way to helping other people find these inspirational stories. So thank you for doing that for me. And now let's get to the conversation with Jordan Taylor. Jordan Taylor, welcome to At the End of the Tunnel. I'm excited to talk to you. And what makes your story compelling to me is that you are a regular person. And when I say that, I'm not (laughs) meaning it as an insult. I mean it as obviously you have... Some notoriety in in your history, which we're going to hopefully talk about, but you're not someone who is necessarily out in the world, you know, dedicating your life to philanthropy. And and I think that when people see someone who's created a huge platform, it's a little intimidating, but you're someone who had an interesting job and, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got a relatively interesting life and got a lot of regular things that you do. And yet- you're in the early stages of this new initiative that is helping people. And, and, I'm, and I'm really excited to unpack that and, and look at how you started, why you started, and, uh, and all the behind the scenes motivations because I think that your example is going to help inspire a lot of people to do something similar. So thanks for well, coming on to the podcast.
1: I-, I love that, Light. Thank you for having me.
0: I always like to start off talking about childhood You grew up in uh, the Los Angeles area.
1: Somewhat. So I was born out here and then spent quite a few years in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where my mom's family's from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of the formative years, I think I was like kindergarten through maybe second grade out there.
0: And then you Mm -hmm. came back to LA after second grade.
1: And then came back to LA. Yeah.
0: Riverside, right?
1: Riverside 951 909 represent.
0: (laughs) Thinking about little Jordan, when you go back to your like six year old, seven year old self, which I'm assuming are your earliest memories, was there a toy or some activity that you remember being obsessed with?
1: You know, I was obsessed with the pool, like swimming. We had a swimming Mm -hmm. pool in our backyard. It was something I could do with my cousins, with my little brother. It was hot New Mexico summers. So I think I was like always in the water. I was always suntanned. I always had my freckles out. I was allergic to sunscreen. So my parents would just like, I look like a geisha girl, just cover me in zinc oxide. I was just like covered in white. And I would say that's probably my earliest memory as far as having a good time.
0: What qualities did you get from swimming? Do you remember? You know,
1: I think, and it sticks with me now, but I think it gave me a sense of freedom a sense of accomplishment, you know, learning how to swim. It was something I remember I would always be in the pool. My parents necessarily weren't, they'd be kind of on the outskirts, just making sure I'm good, but kind of gave me my space in the water. And so I think it probably gave me a lot of, a lot of freedom at that
0: age. Did you swim by yourself or did you always swim with other people?
1: I don't remember, you know, I remember having my cousins around. I was the youngest girl growing up on that side of the family. Mm -hmm. And I had an older brother and a younger brother I have one cousin that would always be with me, but for the most part like it was just me like in floaties, like arm floaties like kicking around, hanging out, having a good time and for the most part kind of alone.
0: What was your household like when you were growing up? You mentioned you had older brother, younger brother, parents were together. What was the vibe like in the house?
1: My dad was a firefighter in Los Angeles when we were living in Albuquerque. So what he would do is he would spend like a month in LA working, just a month straight on the job. And then he would fly back to Albuquerque and spend like a month straight with us. So it's weird. I don't ever remember him being gone, but he was gone probably half the time when we were that age. So it was just me my mom who was a stay-at-home mom. So we spent all our time with her. And then my older brother is 7 years older than me. Younger brother, Mikey, is 13 months younger than me. So it was basically like having a twin. Hated him and loved him. At different stages throughout my life.
0: Do you remember any sayings or philosophies that your parents echoed when you were growing up?
1: Like for instance,
0: (laughs) my dad used to say, you can never get away with anything. All you can do is increase the lag time. So don't try to do anything illegal. He would always, he's a lawyer. So he would always say stuff like that. Anything your dad or your mom would say?
1: You know, growing up, my parents, they weren't like the wisdom parents. They were really just like kind of growing up with us, figuring it out with us. They didn't have these like sage things to say. The only thing I could think of, and we kind of give her shit for it now, it's like my mom would drop us off at school and just tell us, you know, make wise choices and like wave at us. And that was pretty much it. Words of wisdom were few and far between.
0: Well, as the middle child, what was your position in the sibling group? Were you the leader? Were you the, the rebel? Were you...
1: You know, this to- black sheep. No, not at all. I mean, I think we each had our own thing. My older brother, both of my brothers are very sensitive. I never had like the intimidating brother thing when I brought friends or boys or whatever it was around. So my brothers were never this like overarching force in my life. So my older brother was very much a caretaker. I remember like growing up when my parents would fight, he would kind of like find me and my brother and like. Put headphones on us and like shove us in a closet with like whatever we had, like coloring books or whatever. So he definitely took a lot of care of us. He's like a big teddy bear. And then Mikey and I, we're close, super close. I mean, we only had each other. My older brother was off doing whatever he was doing. Fought nonstop, but still like a very loving relationship. I would say. Growing up, I would get in trouble in the house, and my brothers would get in trouble outside of the house. If cops were ever called, it was on them. If One time they had a helicopter searching for them in the Arroyos and back of our house. Like I never got in trouble. I was like the straight A student. I was the good girl. But then in the house, me and my mom would fight like cats and dogs. More of a daddy girl. So we didn't really fight as much. But yeah, me and my mom would go at it.
0: Hey there, really quickly. You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. You had a pretty natural work ethic you used to push yourself.
1: No, not really. I would say that is something I had to learn later in life because my dad is one of those that would like, he would do my school projects for me. My dad would teach us how to cut corners in school.
0: What's an example of something he taught you in cutting corners? Do you remember any?
1: His thing would be like, like even if we had to do like book reports, he'd be like, let's watch the movie. Here's <laughs> here's a website called Cliff Notes. Like He was very much like this thing. And I honestly think I learned more that way. Like I'm a great test taker. I'm fine at school. And I think... He would have done things differently had I struggled and had my brother struggled in school, but his thing was just like, get the good grade and life will teach you the lessons along the way. This thing doesn't matter. You building, it was like a, what'd you have to do in California? Like the missions, the California missions. He's like, building this isn't going to teach you shit. Let me help you. And I'd wake (laughs) up and it would just be done. I was like, all right, (laughs) this is great. He just,
0: he just wanted you to get into real life as quickly as possible. So you could start to learn the real, the real lessons.
1: I also think like to an extent, it did hurt us in some ways, you know, like it, like I said, I had to learn how to work. I had to learn like what hard work was because I had so much of it done for me. So his heart, I think was very much in the right place. I will not be doing things the same way, at least to that extent, for sure.
0: <laughs> so your your dad got straight A's for you. In in other words,
1: my dad did um, great throughout my school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what did you see yourself becoming? As a young person.
1: Yeah, without a doubt, I was going to be a newscaster. Mm-hmm. There was no ifs, ands, buts about it. Like I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And that probably went away when I got into middle school, when I found my, like, my first career. There were many of them.
0: But about that moment you found your first career,
1: music's always been like a huge part of my family. My dad was in a band growing up; he was part of my aunt's band, but she was like solo artist for a little bit. They used to tour with In Vogue, and I just remember growing up like always being at their rehearsals and just being so in awe. So music was always a big thing. We had a karaoke machine at our house. We're Filipino light, so it's just like a part of who we are. And then. I started taking just like voice lessons. My parents wanted me to get into something. I started taking voice lessons. And from there, I entered into like a girl group, like a singing quartet. And we were only together during the Christmas season. And we would tour like malls and we did like Knottsbury Farm. And we would just sing these like Christmas songs in four part harmony. And from there, I was scouted by this guy, his name's Johnny Vieira. He's like my life's biggest enemy. But was very important to my trajectory of life. So he was a music manager. At the time, he was signing me and Vanessa Hudgens, who ended up going on to doing a High School Musical. So he was my first manager, but he sucked <laughs> so bad. I would put him as the reason I was so self-conscious when it came to like writing my own music later and probably performing and really just giving my own opinions in life, all stemmed from this guy just like ridiculing me and belittling me. At the very beginning stages of like, I think I was 14, 13 or 14. So just like the the start of me figuring myself out, I would put things out there and he would like strike them down and kind of laugh. And so I just learned from that, like, okay, so don't give your opinion anymore. And don't have a stance on anything. Just kind of go with the flow, accept what they give you, and you'll be fine and happy. And -hmm. that was the start of that. And it took a very long time for me to shed that.
0: The first group, the quartet, was that the thing where someone put you guys together or these are friends of yours?
1: No, this guy put us all together. I couldn't remember his name to save my life, but he looked like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. (laughs)
0: Like
1: identical. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: And that was just one holiday season. And then you kind of left that group. Why would you leave that group?
1: It was never meant to be anything more than, I, than, than what it was. I think we probably could have come back together for you know the next Christmas season, but there was a start date and an end date with us. So it just, it didn't feel like I was leaving it. It just felt like but I was- But you
0: recognized you know, that you had some sort of a calling or some sort of passion for singing from that experience.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was so yeah. much fun. It was a way for me to meet people. It was a way to like, experience things I'd never experienced. And I got attention. I liked the attention it brought me.
0: Were you actively seeking out the Johnny Vieras of the world to see if they could put you in another group?
1: Not that at that point. No, I I wasn't even thinking of it as like a career or as something that could be more than just you know the fun thing that it was on weekends or you know after school. So I wasn't looking at that at all. I don't think my parents were looking at that. But when he came around, like it kind of there was, there was no going back.
0: How did it happen? How did he, you mean he came around?
1: I'll probably butcher this, but I, I'm pretty sure it was one of our mall performances. And maybe it was, you know, right place, right time. But he pursued us. My dad ended up, you know, eventually becoming my manager, but took that meeting and decided for me at that point, you know, that we were going to take a meeting and at least see see where it goes. And I was excited. I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know where that was going to go. But it was exciting to think that someone saw that in me. I think we ended up working with him for like, maybe two years.
0: So you and Vanessa and two other young ladies
1: no so vanessa was separate from that group but vanessa was with johnny already so he was already working for vanessa and then he was working with another girl group and then myself so we had i think technically three projects
0: at that point you're seeing yourself becoming the next beyonce Hmm. the next destiny's child or pussycat dolls or
1: this is probably like yeah like destiny's child vibes is what i'm hoping for one day but like the solo of that. I never mm-hmm. considered a group. I wish I would have, but I never considered a group at the time. I guess it would have been like more like Destiny's Child, Beyonce vibes, but at 14 years old.
0: <laughs> was college in the picture for you or not so much?
1: I don't remember really thinking about it at that time. It was not something that was super important to my parents at all. My dad went straight to the fire department. My mom never went to college. I don't know. It was just never something we really talked about. I don't think my brother went to college either. I think he went straight to the fire department also. So in
0: high school, when you were about to graduate, you you were nominated as best what? Or most likely to what?
1: (laughs) Well, one, I did not graduate from my high school. I tested out two years early.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Because of of music. In high school, I didn't get anything. In middle school, I was loved in middle school. High school was another story.
0: (laughs) Who encouraged you to test out early? Was that something your dad orchestrated for you?
1: So that was when I was probably 16. And at the time, things with Johnny had kind of gone sour. I ended up getting together with another manager. We produced some music and put it on MySpace at the time. And it took off. It was like a crazy snowball effect. It was like me and Tila Tequila and this girl Chantelle would compete for like the top three and the unsigned artists in like MySpace music. And I had like my page would like freeze people's computers. It was, it was a mess. It was a mess, but it was so fun. So I had like this like mini taste of like internet fame, probably some of the first internet fame that there was, you know, with MySpace. From there, I started working with, you know, MySpace had their own record label. So they called me in for a meeting and you know, kind of realized that we had already created this fan base. You know, I was getting hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of plays on these songs. So what they were offering was like an incubation deal where they would kind of create an artist, but we had already done that. So their deal was with Interscope Records. So they recognized there was not much they could do. And so they passed me up to to meet with Interscope. And once kind of that all happened is when... We realized that, you know, there was just no way in hell I was going to be able to record at nights. You know, the music industry is a nocturnal industry. And then get up and go to school the same way everyone else does. So the end of my sophomore year, I got into like a homeschool situation. And then by the end of sophomore year, um, realized that this was going to become something or it wasn't. And so tested out, got my my GED at 16.
0: So you were writing your own music or do you have writers and producers that you were working with?
1: I wasn't. So I started writing my own music going back to Johnny and I would present this music to him or I would like present rewrites to things that he had written and he would mm-hmm. literally laugh at me. And so it shut me down when it came to like writing my own music. I felt embarrassed to do so. I felt like maybe I wasn't good at it or maybe no one cared about what was going on with the 16-year-old me. And so I had a lot of trouble Kind of getting past that. Once I signed with Interscope, I had mostly people writing for me. A lot of times, if I felt comfortable enough, I would co write with people. And some of, I think the best stuff was co written, but no one ever saw a song that I did on my own ever.
0: And your dad was your full time manager. Like he was like all in on this thing.
1: Oh, yeah. The sacrifice that went into this from my dad, from my mom, from my brothers, like everyone sacrificed everything in this, like five or six-year journey.
0: Talk about the peak of
1: that journey. And how did you know it was time to move on to something else? I mean, Interscope was epic. So I signed directly to Jimmy Iovine, who at the time was running Interscope. Mm -hmm. And it was this battle between... Ludacris wanted to sign me to, what's it called? DTP. I'd spent like a month. Me my dad spent a month out there with one of his producers and writers. And my loyalty was there. I was like, this is where it's happening. I'm gonna be with Ludacris. Also, he was the coolest. So of course, I'm like, yeah, that's where I want to be. And then Interscope came around, and everyone was like, "You're kind of nuts if you don't go with Jimmy and what he's offering with Interscope." So went with Interscope. Worked with, I mean, absolute icons. I was in the studio with Gaga. I was in the studio with just literally everyone at the time. And what was crazy is like, I remember I had a boyfriend at the time. And he was just like, just didn't give a shit about what I was doing to the extent where I was like, well, I don't really give a shit either then. You know, like I'm missing out on what's happening in Riverside, California. Who cares that Chris Brown's in the studio next door? Like I'm missing what my boyfriend's doing in Riverside. Like what parties like I think it was mostly jealousy and like this like fear of missing out of this life that was so ordinary compared to what was going on over here. So Probably one of my biggest regrets is not going full force into what I was doing. I would say maybe two years into that with Interscope, the music industry was like crumbling. Everything was going too digital. And we asked Jimmy for Out of the Contract. And for me, that was the end of music. I was like, I'm done with this. I'm over it. I want to move on. I want to go to college. And then we got hit up on Facebook from this company in Japan. We're like, Hey, you don't need to do anything. We just want to take music that you create. And distribute it out here. Put it on movies or whatever we want to do with it. You don't have to come out here. You don't have to be an artist. Just come out once for a meeting. And I was like, my brother's obsessed with Japan. I got to go. It's a free trip for him. Let's do it. I fell in love with Japan. Fell in love with the people I was working with and sort of got bamboozled into reigniting what I was doing in music, and ended up living out there for three years, which I would say was definitely the peak of what I was doing. It was I was performing in front of tens of thousands of people at these fashion shows. I would get off airplanes, and it would be like this, like insane amount of like fans wanting pictures and autographs, and and then I'd go back to California to visit, and like no one knew who I was. So all of my friends would call me Japana Montana. <laughs> Because I was like living two different lives, which honestly, I think is the best way to do it. But I got lonely. I got really lonely out there. And during that time, the boyfriend that I was pining over during music, we were together, you know, six or seven years. And during that time, he passed from a car accident, drunk driving. I was just really lonely out there. I was really sad. I was really lonely. And after maybe a year and a half, I realized... You know, once I got to the point of like, okay, I think I'm ready to move on. There was just no finding someone out there for me. The culture was so different. The way men treated women was so different. And it was just very clear that there was no love connection for me in Japan.
0: And you're like 21 at the time, right? 2021. Yeah.
1: 21. I turned 21 out there. When Vinny passed, I think I was 20 though.
0: When you thought about the rest of your life, during that time, did you see yourself continuing to be in music or you thought, I'm just going to write this out as much as I can. And then I'm going to go and do something different.
1: The something different was never in my mind. I didn't know what else I could do. So it got to a point for me where I felt like this could really happen. This could be your life for the rest of your life. If you take that leap, is this what you want? Because at some point, There's probably no going back. So it was was a matter of, do you want to do this forever? It doesn't make you happy. And at the time, I wasn't very happy. I had never had body issues or weight issues or like any of that in the States. And in Japan, it was like, you're too tan. You're too fat. You're like all these things where it, it really started eating at me. And I would come back to California and it would be like I could be myself and I was happy and I felt free. And then I met someone in California and was like, for me, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. It was just time. And I didn't know what was going to come next career-wise, but I knew that I didn't want it to be music.
0: So you've gotten that completely out of your system at that point.
1: Yeah. And I also think that I realized that it was never a passion for me. The fact that like my heart and my mind always wanted to be somewhere else. There were times when like imposter syndrome, I didn't have a word for it then, but now it was like, I never felt like I deserved to be in the rooms I was in or on the stages I was on. And I felt like there were so many, I would meet so many like hungry musicians that were starving for this thing I had. And I just felt like I was taking their place. Like I don't even want this that bad. And this Hmm. person is dying to have it. Like, why, what am I doing this for? And then I got to a point where I was like, everyone has sacrificed so much. How do I walk away from this?
0: Were you supporting everyone financially at this point?
1: No, not at all. My dad was still a firefighter, so he wasn't. He would come and see me every so often. My brothers both had jobs of their own, so no, I was I was just financially supporting myself.
0: So, seeing how it goes in the states, you're at the highest level, Jimmy Iovine, and then you also were in Japan and all that, and now you've been removed from it for many, many years. Looking back, is there anything you would have done differently to approach it?
1: All of it. I would have done all of it differently. I still believe i wouldn't be in music at least in that capacity. My biggest regret is not creating relationships during that time. There were so many like fleeting moments with such incredible people, but i was, you know, trying to be loyal to this relationship and i was trying to also maintain the fact that which you know, i'm proud of this thing, but like it is hard being a young woman in music at that time and try to prove that you're succeeding without, you're not sleeping your way to the top. You're not, Mm -hmm. you know, I think my dad helped with this in a lot of ways, but people respected at least him enough to not put me in precarious situations. But I think that I kept myself away more so because I just wanted to make sure they knew that there wasn't something shifty going on. My regret there is what I wish I would have at least just like learned what that all meant for myself. Instead of automatically pushing away all these relationships, I wish I would have at least just like figured it out, given them a chance to either be exactly what I thought they were going to be or prove me wrong. But I didn't at all.
0: Was there any sort of volunteering interest in your life at the time?
1: That I can remember? None. I didn't really... You know know about anything outside of my little bubble of life. I didn't Mm -hmm. know about like anything really shitty that was going on in the world. I didn't know about people that were struggling. Like I was very much horse blinders about what Mm -hmm. I was doing and it was music and it was like my own unhappiness and very me centric and only me.
0: So what did you transition to after music?
1: So after music, I came home, I started doing auto shows. I don't remember how it happened. It was like the first thing where, again, it all comes back to like freedom for me. It was like, I finally got to travel alone. Auto shows, I would be in like all major cities. So I'd be in Chicago, New York, Miami, LA, in my own hotel room with a bunch of like beautiful people who were entertaining and smart and got to go out and... It was like the first time I felt, I guess, adult-ish. Felt a little bit of my own agency and autonomy. And I did that for like, I think, three years. And it was so much fun. Is that like modeling?
0: Is that what you mean when you say auto shows?
1: Yeah, I guess that's a portion of it. I was a narrator. So they would essentially like lock me behind a little cage on stage with the Ram 1500. Mm-hmm. And I would like tell you about why the Ram 1500 is the truck of... America. Why is it the truck it. of America? You know, like I don't remember, but <laughs> it did have some cool features. You had the Ram boxes and in, in the like. Were in you into it, fit. or you just
0: had to memorize a script and just do it's like a routine thing you did every night?
1: Both. I was. I was super into it. I've. I grew up kind of loving cars. Also, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say trucks or Rams for that matter, but I knew like a thing or two about cars. And one thing I got to do while I was with. Interscope as I was doing the MySpace music feed. So like hosting and, and speaking in front of people, I always enjoyed. And I think that was the part about music that I liked is I really enjoyed being in front of people. I just mm-hmm. didn't like that I was having to sing in order to be in front of people.
0: It's funny you mentioned that because whenever I get to see live shows, it's so fascinating when the singer, artist, musician gives some sort of context in between songs and they yeah. tell personal stories and they're like vulnerable and all of that. And it's, I think that's, and not everybody can do that though. Like, I think it's a very rare ability to be able to open up like that. Is that something you sort of cultivated or did you, did you come into singing with that already, that desire to share? And, um, um, and that translate to the auto show.
1: Yeah. Through school. So I was um, like in elementary school, if, if you can call it valedictorian, there was like a valedictorian in elementary school. But I got to give like the speeches and I got to like at graduation, I spoke and through middle school, I was ASB president. So it was like speaking in front of people was something I always loved. I knew that I didn't have like a stage fright, but ugh, God, the second I had to like sing and dance and it wasn't really, a, I wasn't afraid. I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't like it. And I didn't feel I was that good at it. What's another part of that?
0: So why did you stop doing the auto shows after 3 years?
1: I fell in love like fell in love, moved to New York and I didn't want my work to take me from New York and from my person as much as it did. So I started looking for something else and I think my options there were you know I was kind of juggling do I want to work in late night TV? I was thinking about becoming like a guest booker just because of some of the relationships I had in music. I felt like I could easily call on some of those favors to to help me to do my job well. Or at the time I was also finding, you know, myself an apartment, my boyfriend at the time his apartment, our friends' apartments and I realized I was just good at it and I enjoyed it. And once I, I made the decision to go to school, it just fit, it made sense. It it awarded me the opportunities to go when I wanted to go. I wasn't stuck in an office, I wasn't working 9 to 5. It also afforded me like the luxuries that I that I got to be around. I got to look the way I wanted to look. I got to be around the clientele I wanted to be around. So it again gave me that freedom to kind of create the world around me.
0: So is that where you got into real estate
1: in New York? Yeah.
0: Was that your first time in New like properly in New York like living? Yeah. Yeah,
1: it was my first time living there. But I would spend the lot la- you know I spent the last three winters at least two weeks every. Every winter there but the first time living there was in 2015 yeah
0: because it's funny when I think about you because we know we know each other outside of this podcast and I I envision you as a New Yorker
1: yeah and I was surprised (laughs) to learn
0: that you're actually from California and you're not a native New Yorker because you embody so many of so much of that New York sort of vibe because I used to I lived in New York for about seven years and when I was in my 20s and it's very much something I think you either have to be really young or you to be really wealthy to really properly enjoy and do.
1: Yeah. Or a female-like.
0: Or a female. <laughs> <laughs> <An> attractive female.
1: <laughs> it doesn't hurt, I will say.
0: <laughs> okay. So you get into real estate. Is that where you met
1: Carissa? No. So Carissa's been, you know, she's my business partner now, but she has been my best friend since third grade. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so the redhead and I have been going strong since Harrison Elementary.
0: Because I've heard you in another interview, you talked about some old white man that you work with in real estate first and then Carissa came on board.
1: So I was working kind of doing it alone at first. And then Carissa went through a really shitty, you know, breakup in LA. And so I said, you know, come out and just like escape it for a little bit. Come out, stay with me. So she came out and while she was here, I said, just interview interview places. And if something sticks, then you're meant to just move. And to her credit, she was like, all right. So she interviewed, she was working in fashion at the time. She was a personal shopper at Barney's. So she interviewed at a couple like high end fashion spots in New York. And after I think she interviewed only once at the spot, she ended up getting it and moved into literally my bed. We like shared a bed in the basement of our brownstone and thank God She took that jump because I don't think I would be as successful as I am now without her.
0: What are the qualities of a good realtor in New York City?
1: Well, I think that we're very different than most realtors. Everyone's going to have kind of a different answer for this. I think that most realtors in New York are pretty snaky. You know, they're willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Chris and I, I don't know. It's just not us. Our biggest thing is experience to our detriment sometimes, because I do feel like. We would be making a lot more money if we were a little bit more cutthroat. I just, I don't think I would be happy doing that. And I know Carissa wouldn't be happy doing that. And like, we genuinely enjoy doing what we're doing. And so for us, I would say that our clients like that we are approachable. They like that, you know, it's we're really hanging out. We had a big client come into town recently and it was like 9 to 5 with him of just like hanging out like good conversation we talked literally about his past relationship i gave him advice from my experiences we had lunch like just enjoyable and then we just so happen to be very good at our jobs i'm very good on the visual side of things chris is very much she has a much better work ethic than me like and i i will completely give her the credit for helping me to learn where my work ethic lied we also you get kind of two brains with us so Carissa is that one that's gonna be up at six in the morning she's gonna be spreadsheeting she's gonna be emailing I will have went out last night to find said clients <laughs> until three in the morning. she also has like this incredible memory where mine is shot she will know I'll be like who is that girl I met She was wearing pink at that event at like oh I don't know Brooklyn she's like oh, that's a net and I was like, how do you know this and she's like I Something just fires differently. So I don't know. I don't know what our characteristics are that make us good at our job. I think her and I as a team would have and could be good at anything. We just so happen to fall fallen into real estate.
0: Pandemic hits. You've been in real mm-hmm. estate for a little while. Mm-hmm. Obviously that poses a little bit of a problem with you can't show places and whatnot. And you right. You said you experienced anxiety for the first time. Is that real?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure throughout my years, I've had like moments of sadness and things, you know, breakups have made me sad, but it was never like this like impending feeling of doom. I've never had that. I've never been anxious. I've never been an anxious person. I still don't think I've ever had a panic attack necessarily, but like had like these moments of like pitter patter and like stress and terrible sleep and staying in bed for days at a time. And the pandemic brought that on and brought it on hard. What did you think it was from? So many things. Obviously, I think it was easy to see that other people were in us with me when it came to, you know, everything that was going on with BLM and everything that was going on with COVID. When it came to my own, you know, like the added things, it was the I I moved from New York to LA and that was unprompted it was it was just because of the pandemic i was back in my childhood home and it was hard i remember like the first few months i refused to unpack my suitcase because i did not want to feel like i'm back oh i've regressed everyone said i wouldn't make it in new york like that type thing and so i refused to take my stuff out of my suitcase i was sleeping in the spare bedroom like i was not going back to my bedroom because i'd come down just for a charity event to California and then they, were start, they started talking about shutting everything down so in my mind I was like this is temporary this is going to be a few months and by the end of summer I'll be back in New York and then June came around and my lease was up and I was like shit like do I continue paying this astronomical amount for rent and not even be living there or do I put everything in storage and wait for summer to pass and then i and then i'll head back once this pandemic's over and then just the months started passing and eventually i think in maybe in november i went back and sold all my stuff and packed up you know whatever clothes i wanted to bring back here and that was when i was like okay this is officially happening i'm moving into my bed my old bedroom like let me unpack i'm a californian again
0: i've been following you on social media and i saw you went pretty hard on all the social justice, protests. So is that something you had been doing any sort of protests at all? Or is that your first time really getting out there, you know, so, and protesting and whatnot?
1: I would say it all kind of stemmed from in New York. I was with someone who was very on the side of politics. It was his mm-hmm. daily job. Trevor Noah worked at The Daily Show and he just kind of was the first person to like take the time to explain things to me. You know, this is what's going on here's why it affects you. Here's why it doesn't affect you. Here's how it's affecting people that don't look like you or that don't have the things that you have. And it just made something click for me. Mm -hmm. And being in New York and having, you're in this like melting pot of people, not that Riverside wasn't, but Riverside was one type of ethnicity. It wasn't white, but I didn't grow up with a lot of black people at all. And it wasn't until I got to New York and like my primary friend group was all either South Africans or African-Americans in New York. And then, you know, a lot of Indian friends came about and a lot of people from Trinidad. And so I just started learning about culture and I started realizing that, you know, some of my favorite people and what made them my favorite people were these differences, these things that they could teach me that I'd never seen before. I give most of that credit. Like the, the kind of switch in me was New York and that relationship.
0: With Trevor, Obviously, he's on television. He's, he's got to know what he's talking about. So I'm curious what the behind the scenes was on that. And if that rubbed off on you, like, would you see him studying or would you guys read books together and like talk about these things and you would understand them on a deeper level? Or was it completely separate from whatever you guys were talking about?
1: His job, you're saying?
0: Well, just learning about these issues, because, I mean, he's very articulate, he's very eloquent in the way he articulates them. So is that something that Um, you were part of in that process?
1: I mean, very much. So Trevor and I met before he got the show, before he started the show. And so he was already just teaching me things about the world. When it came to American politics, our relationship at that point kind of shaped itself around his job. A lot of what we did, like I had to fit myself in to the holes that The Daily Show didn't, you know, already fill up. And so, you know, a lot of after work conversations with him, it would be me, him, and one of his writers or one of his best friends. And it would be talking about what happened at the show today, or it'd be about them trying to figure out, you know, how do we make this make sense for America? Or how do we make this? He was very passionate about what he did. And did he ever, I love that you said like him doing research, which is hilarious to me because it was like, he just had all of this knowledge and. The only time I'd ever see him really like research is he'd wake up and he'd read the news for 30 minutes before he went into work. It always kind of freaked me out how much he just knew about the world. And I think that says a lot about one, and I've seen this now a lot now that I have so many friends from different countries is once you get out of our American school system and just like Americans in general, like people know about the world. People can look outside of our small little bubble of America and, and tell you about what's going on in the world. And that was something I'd never experienced before. So a lot of it was me just watching him and like really just like taking him in. And a lot of it was him genuinely taking the time to be like, let me teach you this thing. And it and it never felt like it was never condescending. It was never, you don't know this. So I have to teach you this. It was like he just loved to share that with people. I think that there honestly was no better job for him than that job because he it was who he was to share what he, he knows and knew and, and how he feels about a thing. And without pressure, send that out into the world or send that out to me or to his friends and be like, hey, think what you want, but let me tell you everything I know and I feel about this thing. And then you can formulate your opinion.
0: You had your point of reference for what it feels like to be a part of a movement with BLM and this anxiety you were describing that that happen? that came after that once you kind of move back into your old
1: yeah, yeah. home. So, So I would say once that got to like, it's crazy, the top of the hill for BLM when everything, you know, all the riots were happening and everyone experienced this, but like that feeling of like, this doesn't end. Like this news just keeps coming and it just, it's worse. Or they've forgotten about this. And then it became this thing of like battling people. And it was like, here's my information and I'm standing with this group of people and you have your information, you're standing with this group of people and no, one's trying to fix anything. They're just trying to be right. And I was that person too. Like, I'm just trying to be right. Like I'm right. And it was funny. I was thinking about this on the car ride over here. It's so hard for people to just say, I don't have an answer for that. Or you have, you have a good point. Let me get back to you because everyone wants to be like the end all of that argument. And I can think back at a couple of different conversations I had where it was like, I could have literally, in the end, won this argument by just saying, you know, what? let me ask someone that knows more about this. And let me get some context on this and come back to you. Instead of me just like, neither of us knew what the fuck we were talking about. And it's just like ignorant arguments. And no one's mind was changed. No one's just heart, hearts were changed during that process. And I think I slowly learned throughout that... but. How to better have those conversations. But a big part of that anxiety was, you know, having those battles with people I love. I was having those battles within my household with my parents. So that was a big part of it. And then it was like this unknown of like, does real estate continue after this? Is that gonna be my job? Am I gonna succeed now that I'm not in New York? What does that look like? It was just so many things. I lost my dog of seven years during the pandemic. And I think and then, it was also, like you said, the isolation. It was the ability to slow down and not have anything to distract me from like sadness and like the turmoil that was happening.
0: And then you saw the ad for Be The Match, the paid ad for Be The Match on social I media.
1: Did. I did. Yeah. I woke up and I was scrolling through on Instagram and I saw this, I think he's like seven or eight years old. His name's Thor. Thor. And he's the cutest kid. And he's just like walking us through like this pain event he's happening. And like, you can hear the pain in his voice. I'm devastated. I'm like ugly crying. And like the wee hours of the morning, I just remember thinking like, why don't I, I know about like, I, I right away went and I, I joined. So be the matches like a resource center for sickle cell and like blood cancers So right away. I put myself on the registry and then was like, I I don't understand how I didn't know about this already. And do my friends know about this surely not do you know, so my family know absolutely not why not and how many other you know incredible groups are there doing these incredible things that i don't know about surely my people don't know about so let's you know let's find them and it became like this like weird obsession for the next like week and a half and that was kind of the beginnings of where we are now
0: so what was the next step I think you, you'd mentioned that you reached out to some of your friends and you saw the power of your voice or how did that yeah. work?
1: So obviously Carissa is kind of on board with everything I do. So <laughs> explaining it to her was like easy. She's like, cool. Let me know how I help. And then it was like, I'm back in my hometown. My friends are bored. I know they're bored. They're not working any jobs. They're not going in They're zoom meeting their lives away. And I know that this is probably the only time in my life where I'm going to have the time to do something other than you know what I was already doing for money, and so called up my best friend Summer, another best friend of mine who I've known almost as long as I've known Carissa, and agreed. But like nothing like super excited about like her agreement. Um, my friend Nikki agreed, but again, like all right, cool. Like let us know how we can help. And it wasn't until we started our first month, which was with Bear Truth, who works with the homeless in Skid Row. After that first Sunday of, you know, we spent a Sunday handing out Little Caesar's pizza for, you know, a few hours. I saw pretty instantly how much it kind of changed everyone's hearts in the matter. It gave us purpose and no one had that at that time. Like I said, like everyone had distractions in life. You know, you had work to get to, you had this to get to. And it was the first time, even after like BLM and everything where we could physically do something that was tangible we could see the difference it made instantly
0: what would you have described your purpose as before before that if somebody stopped you and said hey what's your Jordan, what's your purpose in life
1: i think i would have been very hard pressed to to answer that it was not something i'd ever thought about i honestly probably could have eye rolled at the question <laughs> because it, to me it's like i'm just like i'm just doing what i'm so i i'm just surviving i'm just figuring it out like purpose i don't know what my purpose is It never would have dawned on me that I could have a purpose.
0: What does it feel like to feel like you've connected to some sort of greater purpose? What does that actually feel like in your body?
1: The most obvious thing for me is like, I think it was a big thing in getting me out of this, of like the dumps of where I was. It lifted something off of me. Granted, it was something new that I was feeling, but I guess it's given me more direction and focus on what the future looks like. I've never been a person that like, I've never planned a future. I've never gone, like I would say, outside of six months from now into like, what does that look like? I'm, I'm not a what does five years look like for you? Where do you see yourself in? I've never seen that. And so it's the first time where I'm kind of being forced to look ahead, not for my sake, but for the sake of this thing we've created. In order to succeed now, I have to. And it's been kind of cool to realize that it's not the like, you know, the end of the world to do so. Cause I always looked at it as if I create this expectation of the future, then that's only setting me up for a potential disappointment. And I think that because this thing affects and has brought in so much more than just myself, it's allowed me to see that it's, again, it's not about me and it's not about whether I disappoint myself or not.
0: What I love about your story is I think you started in November of 2020 and you started going to these Bare Truth events on Skid Row on Sundays. Uh, you started going every Sunday. And you said that you had ADHD, which I think is something that a lot of people would maybe not want to publicize. But you actually used that in the formulation of this initiative. right? And I want you to talk about that. And what was that moment when you when you had the idea of... 12 MOG. And when did you actually name it? And what was that process all like?
1: So that actually happened all at the start. I've kind of always been like that was like part of like the, the obsessive part of those first couple of weeks where it was like I found the first 12 of what I thought were gonna be the 12 and 12 months of giving the name came, you know, towards the end of that whole process. But I knew from the top kind of what I wanted this thing to be. I knew I wanted to be 12 different organizations. I knew I wanted to be one a month, I knew I wanted to be different every month and we started the whole thing by going through you know the calendar of significant like this is the month of breast cancer awareness or this is the month of mental health or whatever it was or just significant days within that month i mean like let's line it up with you know the calendar that's already there that way we can kind of piggyback on things that are already happening and so for me yeah it was one of those things where I don't think I had planned it to be, you know, a thing a month because I'm going to get bored or like want, you know, to like find the next thing. But I realized, you know, after, you know, 3 or 4 months into this that it really did help me to know that I need to have a goal in sight. There needs to be an end date in sight because if a thing is just it goes on forever and and I it that's too much for me. I can't do that. I can't handle that. That's why I could never do a 9 to 5. Like for me it's like That's just one thing forever. There's no end. There's no change. It's terrifying. After, you know, the success of a few months, I realized, oh, okay, maybe this was a bit of me protecting myself without realizing it, protecting like my sanity is to bring in these different causes every month. And so it gives me the opportunity now to, you know, I get to learn something new every month. I get to be, you know, so ingrained and so passionate about this one thing for that month. And then I get to look forward to the new thing that happens next month. And what's kind of happened is instead of it being like, all right, here's one month and now that's over, here's another month that's over, now it's kind of become, you know, we're on our seventh month. Now we just have seven things under our, our wing. So, Bare Truth has continued to be a thing that we're a part of every month. Uh, OBOL, I still send people OBOL's Operations Blankets of Love, and it's about shelter animals. And we're still sending you know, donation items there. And we worked with Innocence Project. And that was two people who were wrongfully uh, convicted and spent... Both of them spent about 19 plus years in prison. And Kiera, who was one of the recipients of that month, I have formed a really you know, beautiful, amazing relationship with her. We go to lunch. I know her baby boy champion. So we're just collecting now. Instead mm-hmm. of it being one and done every month, it's become like a collection and just keeps growing. Every month,
0: what's been the most unexpected benefit?
1: I could not choose one. One of my favorite things about it has has been seeing my friends in a different light. I've I've known them all one way, and like Summer, for example, I've known her as this buy the book nine to five. This is what my job is. I come home, I eat, I wake up, I go to my job. So seeing her in this, like seeing her discover this new side of her and seeing how great she is with people and seeing how contagious this giving back gene really is that's my favorite part about it just seeing like the good in my my people that i already love and i know that they are good but seeing it put to use that part of them has been my favorite part but i would say it's been cool to see also how past organizations are helping organizations that we're working with going forward and also seeing my capabilities it's been a scramble every month to see if we can put these new things together. Every month is so different. So it's like this challenge of, can we do this? And then being able to utilize everyone in my black book and seeing where favors I've done in the past have come up and helped me in in what we're doing now. That's been the coolest thing is just to see how everything I've done leading up to here, whether that's music, whether that's auto shows, whether that's just my life in New York, real estate is all helping and all bringing me further into what this purpose is.
0: You mentioned that you had your team do some workshop. You brought a friend in to do a workshop. Talk about a little bit about that and what came out of that experience.
1: I have a new friend. His name's Dan Hill. I met him through Twitter, which is pretty unreal, and he basically is like a fixer for different like corporations, and he hates that I say this, but he's like the Olivia Pope. But with morals, he says. So his journey has kind of led him. What does he say? He says, all of these companies end up failing or go through these moments of crises because of the same major issues. He's like, I've, I've been around the block so many times. At this point, I think that I can mitigate those issues or those crises before they even come into play. We can kind of predict them. And so he's like, with you and with 12Mog, you're so fresh and you're so new. Let's figure out where your weaknesses are now, you'll avoid any of those crises in the future. And he said, and the biggest and easiest way to do that is figure out your passion. Figure out your individual passions as board members and as people running this thing, and then figure out like the real mission and passion behind 12 months of giving. And so I gathered the girls and we did this via Zoom with Dan. And it was the first time that I... Pinpointed what my passion was. You know, my passion is connecting, and it's always been that. If it was not connecting blind dates in the past or friends to other friends or people to their new home, it's now connecting people to these incredible nonprofits. And that's exactly what 12 months is it's an opportunity for people to come to a trusted place. You know, everyone that we've kind of focused on is my, my sphere of influence across IG. And so they know what they're going to get with me. They know I'm very opinionated when it comes to my beliefs. And they know that I'm going to put my mind and my heart into these organizations fully. And so that's what 12 months gets to be, is it gets to be my ability to intake all of this knowledge on one cause or one subject, and then expose everyone to that and give you a trusted avenue to be a part of the change whether that's with your time whether that's with your dollar oftentimes you get you know the option there so it was the first opportunity or the first time in my life where i was pursuing something with the knowledge of what that passion and purpose was in doing so
0: with that knowledge if someone were to come to you and they had an idea to start something like a nonprofit what sort of advice or guidance or Suggestions? Would you offer that person?
1: I actually have several people that I guess I mentor, and I'm very much so green at this. But I think that's what makes me right for the job is that I'm I'm kind of learning with with people that are just you know months behind me in this mm-hmm. process. So a friend of mine, Dan, just called me yesterday and was just like, "I just want to pick your brain. What did you do right? What have you done wrong? What would you change?" For me, my biggest thing has been marketing like 12mog is essentially a marketing tool for these other nonprofits and I've done a decent job I think what they'd call me like a micro influencer you no know, it's like under a certain amount but but I have a big say with those you know you know that small reach of people and I've utilized that I think you you need to go and you need to look at what your strengths are hundred percent you need to look at another thing I told Dan is like look at who is in your corner and when it comes to nonprofit, it is so much easier to not be afraid to ask, ask for things. And you'll realize one, a lot of people innately want to give. And if you just put it out there that this is something you need, or this is something you're asking for, the second you put charity or nonprofit, or you know everything will be going to this cause, it opens so many doors. It makes people so much less skeptical and suspicious of you. And so my biggest advice is ask for help. You'll be amazed at who is willing to give their time and their energy and their expertise when they know that it's it's going to something that matters.
0: How has your idea of success evolved over the years since your singing days (laughs) and the real estate and all, all the things?
1: I don't know if it really has all that much I really just want to be happy. And like, you know, success for me is being able to, I guess, not worry or or not worry about things that don't matter. And I think I've always kind of done that. I think as I've gotten older, the things that I don't have to worry about or that I've decided not to worry about are much more important things and much bigger things. And so it's been a lot harder to live and just enjoy and be in the moment. Like success for me is never having to work a nine to five, I think that works for some people. For me, it would be detrimental to my happiness. I would hate it. Success for me is being able to spend my time with the people that I want to spend it with, to be able to Mm -hmm. spend my time the way I want to spend it. Success for me, I think eventually will become more of a monetary thing when there's little things of mine running around that I have to be responsible for. But for now, I think success is my time. Is exactly how and where and who I get to spend it with.
0: And that brings us back around to the very beginning, to how we started the conversation. Your favorite activity, which you said was swimming. The theme that keeps emerging for me, and I could be wrong about this, but <laughs> it's this idea of, of, like you say, freedom and essentially going with the flow. You know, yeah. like it, when you're in a pool, There's nowhere to get to. It's just, you're just there. And the whole idea is just to enjoy the support of that element. And that is the point. The point is to just be, to just be there and to some way allow that water to support you. And it seems like, (laughs) it seems like throughout your life, you've had certain experiences where you enjoyed it, but you weren't necessarily identified so heavily with it. And when it was time to move on to the next thing, you moved on to the next thing. And now you get to kind of be the living embodiment of, of that principle through your work now. And you're still relatively young. And you know, you're still like, and again, this is why I like your stories like you're figuring this out now, and you're incorporating this as a key component to success into your life. Like it's not everything, but it's it's something that helps to shape the other things that we know we need, we need to pay the bills. We need to, you know, house ourselves and all of this, but that's not really, that doesn't mean anything if you don't have a bigger purpose. And so now that that piece of the puzzle is in place, it bleeds over into those other areas of life. I want to just acknowledge you for taking that leap and starting in that. It's one thing to go and volunteer on a Sunday. It's another thing to start an organization (laughs) to get your friends together and to form a board and do all the things. That's a lot. That's a lot, you know? Yeah, for uh, sure.
1: And it is, it's proven to be a lot, but yeah, but it's so
0: fulfilling. Yeah. So absolutely. So I want to acknowledge you for taking that leap. Thanks for being the example for those of us listening to this interview who are also thinking of wanting something a little bit more than just material accomplishments and hopefully, People will tap into whatever that makes their heart sing in, in, in regards to giving back and start taking some meaningful steps in that direction.
1: Well, I so, love that, yeah. and Thank they're you. always more than welcome with us if they if they want to, you know, make that leap with twelve months of giving. I can stop
0: you. But what is something that people can do to support you?
1: So we're always looking for volunteers. Obviously, we're mainly based in LA right now, but we're going to have a bit of a bit more of a presence in New York for the the next twelve months in 2022. I also
0: Obviously, heard you mention you were thinking about like branching it out and having people in Vegas and in Miami do a 12 mug.
1: Exactly. Did, I forgot that I shared that with you. Yeah. I mean, we, we're looking at different ways to make this extend to other parts of the world. I mean, this is something that can easily be replicated in other cities and other markets. And I think why not? If we can figure out a way to to do that and to not, you know, exhaust ourselves in LA, then I would love to eventually get this out to, you know, other cities, other States, other countries. But for now, obviously donations are always appreciated on our end, but more importantly, every month we are working with a new organization and we would prefer the, the donations to go directly to them. You know, volunteers go directly mm-hmm. to them. We just want to be a support, an extra leg for them. So the great thing about 12 months giving is if one thing doesn't speak to you, you have 11 other things that might. In the next few months, we're working with Be The Match. We're going to have a blood drive and they do a swab to put you into the registry. So we're looking for people to do that. That's something you can do from your home. You just go to Be The Match. I think it's bethematch.org or you can go to their social media and they will send you a swab. You do it all from you know the comfortability of your home. And then after that, we have Pencils of Promise, which is one of the big ones that got me into this. They're building schools all over the world. We're also doing a really cool breast cancer event in October, which like, I hope you can jump on a plane from Mexico. Hopefully that the, this Delta variant won't screw us, but we plan on doing a really cool event in LA for breast cancer. We're going to be doing a really cool art auction. So, I mean, if you want to, if you want to see more, you can follow us at 12 Months of Giving on IG or 12 mogorg to get to our website.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. We'll obviously list all that in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And I hope to see you again at some point soon in person.
1: I hope so. I miss you so much, Light. (laughs) Take care. Thank you for having me. Have a good one.
0: Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Jordan Taylor of 12 months of giving to learn more about her work, I would suggest starting with her Instagram at jordan taylor now, which is spelled j o r d y n t a y l o r n o w, or you can go to 12 months of giving all spelled out. And we'll put all of these links in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com/tunnel. While you're on my site, you also will see a link to my latest book called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. Many of the inspirational stories in the book are drawn from my five years of sending out those stories to the subscribers of my Daily Dose of Inspiration email, which you can also subscribe to while you're on my website. And you will see a link to my online community, which is called the Happiness Insiders. This is a community that I started as a means of helping people who want to go deeper into their inner work with the intent to create more inner happiness. Gives them a way to do that. And very easy, accessible, tangible steps. But more importantly than that, it gives them access to community and accountability, which is usually the missing component when we decide, okay, I want to cultivate happiness within, but you end up being the only person in your friend circle or in your community that you know, that is as dedicated and committed to that inner work. And so it's helpful to have like-minded peers who you can reach out to and you can see their progress and they can see your progress and you can hold each other accountable. So if you're interested in that, Click on that link and it'll take you into that world and you can see what the offering is. And my final ask for you is, again, to leave a rating or review for this podcast if you haven't done so already and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith, And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at LightWatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to LightWatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.